Chapter Twenty Three of Howarths. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Howarths by Francis Hodgson Burnett. Chapter Twenty Three. Ten Shillings Worth. The same evening, Mr. Briley, having partaken of an early tea and some vigorous advice from his wife, had suddenly, during a lull in the storm, vanished from the domestic circle, possibly called therefrom by the recollection of a previous engagement. Mrs. Briley had gone out to do her Sunday shopping, the younger children had been put to bed, the older ones were disporting themselves in the streets and byways, and consequently Janey was left alone uncheered save by the presence of granny dixon who had fallen asleep in her chair with her cap unbecomingly disarranged janey sat down upon her stool at a discreet distance from the hearth she had taken down from its place her last book of memoirs a volume of a more than usually orthodox and peppery flavour she held it within range of the light of the fire and began to read in a subdued tone with much unction, but she had only mastered the interesting circumstance that James Joseph William was born November 8th, when her attention was called to the fact that wheels had stopped before the gate, and she paused to listen. Bless us, she said. Summons coming in. The person in question was Howarth, who so far dispensed with ceremony as to walk up to the firelight without even knocking at the door which stood open. Where's your father? he demanded. He's taken his scent off the beer house, said Janey, as he allers does a Saturday neat, and every other neat too, as he gets the chance. A chair stood near and Howarth took it. I'll sit down and wait for him, he replied. They'll have to wait a good bit then, said Miss Briley. He'll know and be home till mid-neat. She stood in no awe of her visitor, she had heard him discuss too freely and too often. Of late years, she had not unfrequently assisted in the discussions herself. She was familiar with his sins and shortcomings, and regarded him with due severity. "'He'll know and be home till midnight,' she repeated, as she seated herself on her stool. But Howarth did not move. He was in a mysterious humour. It was plain. In a minute more, his young companion began to stare at him with open eyes. She saw something in his face which bewildered her. He's getting more than's good for him, she was about to decide shrewdly, when he leaned forward and touched her with the handle of the whip he held. You're a sharp little lass, I warrant, he said. Janey regarded him with some impatience. He was flushed and somewhat dishevelled and spoke awkwardly. "'You're a sharp little lass, I'll warrant,' he said again. "'I had to be,' she responded tartly. "'They'd be sharp thus then if they had as much to look after as I are. "'I dare say,' he answered, "'I dare say,' then added even more awkwardly still. "'I've heard Murdoch say you were.' Murdoch. The disfavour with which she had examined him began to be mingled with distrust. She hitched her stool a few inches backward. "'Mester Murdoch,' she echoed. "'Aye, I know him well enough. "'He comes here every day or so. "'Aye, him and me's good friends. "'He 
"'He's got a good many friends,' he said. "'Aye,' she answered. "'He's a nice chap. "'Most of folk take to him. "'There's Mr. French now and her. "'He goes there pretty often. "'Aye, oftener than he goes anywhere else. "'They make as much of him as if he were a gentleman. "'Did he tell you that?' "'Nay,' she answered. "'He doesn't talk much about it. "'I fun it out from them as knows.' Then a new idea presented itself to her. What does thou want to know for? She demanded with unceremonious candour. He did not tell her why. He gave no notice to her question, save by turning away from the fire suddenly and asking her another. What does he say about her? He spoke in such a manner that she pushed her stool still farther back and sat staring at him blankly and with some indignation. He doesn't say nowt about her she exclaimed. What's up with thee? The next moment she uttered an ejaculation and the book of memoirs fell upon the floor. A flame shot up from the fire and showed her his face. He drew forth his purse and opening it took out a coin. The light fell upon that too and showed her what it was. Do you see that? he asked. Aye, she answered. It's a half sovereign. I'll give it to you, he said if you'll tell me what he says and what he does. You're sharp enough to have seen summit, and I'll give it to you if you'll tell me. He did not care what impression he made on her, or how he entangled himself. He only thought of one thing. Tell me what he says and what he does, he repeated, and I'll give it to you. Janey rose from her stool in such a hurry that it lost its balance and fell over. I, I do not want it, she cried. I do not want it. I canna make thee out. You're not as sharp as I took you for. If you don't want it, he answered, you'll not earn another as easy, my lass. Only stern common sense rescued her from the weakness of backing out of the room into the next apartment. I dunnot know what thou'rt driving at, she said. I tell thee, I dunnot know nowt. Does he never say, he put it to her, that he's been there and that he's seen her and that she sat and talked, and that he's looked at her, and listened, and thought it over afterward. This was the last straw. Bewilderment turned to contempt. That wouldn't be worth ten shillings, she said. Thou knows he's been there, and thou knows he's seen her, and thou knows he couldn't see her without looking at her. I dunnot see there's out he looking at her, or he listening either. "'Where's the use of giving ten shilling to her summit you know you sen? "'There's nought in that.' "'Has he ever said it?' he persisted. "'No,' she answered. "'He hasn't. "'He never were much give to talk, "'and he says less than ever in these days. "'Has he ever said that she treated him well "'and was easier to please than he'd thought? "'Has he never said nout like that?' "'Nay, that he hasn't. "'With vigour. "'Now to the sort.' He got up as unceremoniously and abruptly as he had sat down. I was an accursed fool for coming, she heard him mutter. He threw the half-sovereign toward her, and it fell on the floor. Art thou going to gee it me? she asked. Yes, he answered, and he strode through the doorway into the darkness, leaving her staring at it. She went to the fire, and bending down, examined it closely and rubbed it with a corner of her apron. Then she tried its ring upon the flagged floor. Aye, she said, it's a good un, sure enough. It's a good un. She had quite lost her breath. 
she sat down upon her stool again forgetting the memoirs altogether i never heard so much dumment made over nout in all me days she said i canna see what he were up to asking questions as if he were a drink he mun ha' been a drink or he'd never a given it to me and on the mother's return she explained the affair to her upon this sound and common-sense basis mester howarth's been here she said and he were a drink and give me ten shillin i couldna make out what he were driving at he were asking questions as put me out o patience e what fools men is when they've gitten too much when he left the house howarth sprang into his gig with an oath since the morning he had had time to think over things slowly he had worked himself up into a desperate headlong mood his blood burned in his veins his pulses throbbed he went home to his dinner but ate nothing he drank heavily and sat at the table wearing such a look that his mother was stricken with wonder i am out of humour old lady he said to her stick to your dinner and don't mind me a chap with a place like mine on his mind can't always be up to the mark if you ain't ill jem she said it don't matter you're not talking you mustn't think of me my dear i'm used to having lived alone so long after dinner he went out again but before he left the room he went to her and kissed her there's nought wrong with me he said you've no need to trouble yourself about that i'm right now never fear there's nothing else could trouble me she said nothing so long as you're well and happy there's nought to go again me being happy he said a little grimly not yet as i know on i don't let things go again me easy about half an hour later he stood in the road before his partner's house the night was warm and the windows of the drawing-room were thrown open he stood and looked up at them for a minute and then spoke aloud ay he said he's there by george he could see inside plainly and the thing he saw best were rachel french and murdoch french himself sat in a large chair reading miss french stood upon the hearth she rested an arm upon the low mantel and talked to murdoch who stood opposite her the man who watched uttered an oath at the sight of her him he said him damn him and grew hot and cold by turns he kept his stand for full ten minutes and then crossed the road the servant who answered his summons at the door regarded him with amazement i know they're in he said making his way past him i saw em through the window those in the drawing-room heard his heavy feet as he mounted the staircase it is possible that each recognised the sound french rose hurriedly and it must be owned with some light trepidation rachel merely turned her face toward the door she did not change her position otherwise at all murdoch did not move my dear fellow said french with misplaced enthusiasm i am glad to see you but howarth passed him over with a nod his eyes were fixed on murdoch he gave him a nod also and spoke to him what you're here are you he said that's a good thing we think so said mr french with fresh fervour my dear fellow sit down he took the chair offered him but still looked at murdoch and spoke to him i've been to Briarley's, he said i've had a talk with that little lass of his she gave me the notion you'd be here 
"'She's a sharp little and by George.' "'They're all sharp,' said Mr. French. "'The precocity one finds in these manufacturing towns "'is something astonishing, astonishing.' "'He launched at once into a dissertation "'upon the causes of precocity in a manufacturing town "'and became so absorbed in his theme "'that it mattered very little that Howarth paid no attention to him. "'He was leaning back in his chair with his hands in his pockets, not moving his eyes from Murdoch. Mr. French was in the middle of his dissertation, when half an hour afterward, Howarth got up without ceremony. Murdoch was going. I'll go with you, he said. They went out of the room and down the staircase together without speaking. They did not even look at each other. When they were fairly out of the room, Mr. French glanced somewhat uneasily at his daughter. Really, he said, he is not always a pleasant fellow to deal with. One is never sure of reaching him. And then, as he received no answer, he returned in some embarrassment to his book. End of chapter 23